Welcome to KCADV Certification Series. You are listening to Legal Basics 2, Part 2, Civil and Criminal Remedies for Survivors of Domestic and Sexual Violence. We hope you review the materials that were sent to you, or you can visit certification.kcadv.org forward slash Moodle. Diane Fleet, thank you for joining us for KCADV certification series called Legal Basics Part 2, Section 2. And I am here with Meg Savage, who is the legal counsel with KCADV. And again, my name is Diane Fleet, and I'm with Greenhouse 17. This session, I'm calling Civil and Criminal Remedies Addressing Domestic and Sexual Violence. So we're going to be talking a lot about the court process, protective orders, criminal charges. This, to me, is one of the fascinating areas of advocacy work. I sort of started out in the court system and really sort of enjoyed that whole criminal justice process, if that's the correct term. I don't know if enjoys it. Fascinated by it. I'm going to use that word again. But when Meg and I were talking, we really wanted to make sure people had a pretty good overview of what district circuit and family courts look like. All of our counties, all of our 120 counties do things just a little bit differently. And just that beginning phase can sometimes be a little confusing both for our advocates as well as our survivors. So Meg, do you have any words of wisdom on how the court system is laid out in Kentucky? Yeah. So every state has its own, you know, unique court system set up. And here in Kentucky, you basically have two divisions of court, and that would be district court and circuit court. Generally speaking, district court is where sort of less serious matters are heard and circuit court is where more serious matters are heard. We also have family court in about uh, half of the counties of Kentucky and family court is considered on a level with circuit court. So it's sort of part of circuit court as well. And the family courts are, you know, a newer creature, but they've certainly been around for many decades now. So in the district court, as far as, you know, what a domestic violence survivor might have to go to court for, district court hears a myriad of types of cases. So anything from small claims court, to civil actions where somebody's suing another person, you know, for a relatively small amount of money, which could be, I think, up to like $15,000. Probate, you know, so when somebody dies and their estate needs to go through probate. And child support actions are typically going to be in district court, paternity actions, and dependency, neglect, and abuse cases. So that's where the cabinet is, you know, working with a family, hopefully to prevent removal or there's already been removal and they're hopefully aiming towards reunification. But by far the most common facet of court that a survivor might find themselves in is district criminal court. So the batter might be prosecuted and unfortunately also, you know, sometimes survivors end up being charged with crimes and they may find themselves in district criminal court. So district criminal court handles the misdemeanors. So those are the less serious of our crimes. Those are punishable by up to 12 months in jail. And those prosecutions are handled by the county attorney's office. And also, of course, you know, if the batterer is being prosecuted, then a survivor might need to go to uh, district criminal court, you know, for a hearing, uh, just to keep up with the case for a trial, if it actually goes to a jury trial. And then circuit court, is reserved for civil lawsuits that involve more money, more, you know, larger amounts of money, and also are felony crimes. 
those are all going to be prosecuted in circuit court. And the Commonwealth Attorney's Office is responsible for handling those felony offenses. Also in circuit court, for those counties where there is no family court and there's a divorce or an original custody action going on, that will be heard in circuit court. Now, for those uh, counties where there is family court, they would be hearing the divorce cases. And additionally, they would be hearing the protective order cases. So for those counties where there isn't family court, the protective order cases are typically heard in district court. So that would be another time that a survivor might need to go to district court. I know I live in Lexington. We have two separate courthouses in a lot of counties in Kentucky. They don't. But if they have a justice center, they might have, you know, the district courtrooms and the circuit courtrooms. So you kind of have to need to know where you're going to, to navigate all of that. And so, of course, we have our elected judges, the district court judges, the circuit court judges. And for those counties that have family court, the family courts have their own judges. And sort of the intention of family court was so that one family or one judge would be aware of all the different things that were going on. They really thought that it would be helpful as divorce or custody was being determined, that it might be really helpful to know that a domestic violence order had been filed you know, a little bit ago, and that judge had all that information. Sometimes that's not the best. You might not be happy with a judge that's been selected for you. But really, the idea was there's sort of, I think, a pretense that everybody in the courthouse knows what everybody else is doing, that there's great communication between district and circuit and EPO and criminal court. And and that necessarily is not true. And so the idea of having one judge to be able to hear all the facts in the case and to make better decisions, I think, was sort of the intention behind a family court. Do you think the other areas are also trying to get family courts? Or are we kind of, do you think half is probably the status quo? I think that would be the ideal in Kentucky, but I think it comes down to a matter of uh, money. And, you know, sometimes we have specialty courts like veterans court or drug courts or whatever, and they come and they go. And typically that's because the money dries up for that initiative. So maybe someday we will have it throughout Kentucky and that really would be preferable. One thing before we hop into talking about EPOs and TIPOs with Meg I do want, if you find that you're an advocate and you're going to be working predominantly in the community and the courts, it really behooves you to get to know the players in those courts. Some advocates sort of come in and they they really want to champion the survivor, which is, you know, right, our, our goal. Um, but we can sometimes enter into that system in a very adversarial way. And sometimes that is not always what's in the best interest of the survivor because we may need that bailiff to be able to walk the victim out to the car, you know, after a really tense protective order hearing. Or we may need to be able to call up that county attorney's office, as Meg said a little bit ago, sometimes the women and men that we're working with may be on the other side of the court system. They may have a criminal case pending themselves. So if you can build those relationships but stay true to the purpose that we have, that we're not colluding with the system, that we all have our roles. Our role is to advocate and work with survivors as best we can, and they are our number one priority. But having those relationships sometimes allows us to help the advocate navigate that system in a little more friendly and promising way. And that's our biggest goal. So we don't want to be too friendly, but we don't want to be too adversarial either. And I I think really getting to know those players, whether you've got coordinated councils, whether you're just sort of connecting with people a little bit, 
you know, before and after court, spending a little time with the court clerks, those folks can do go a long way with making the path that you're, um, the person you're working with can be a little easier and a little friendlier, but all along be checking yourself. Are you doing this at the advocate or at the survivor's request? Are you not speaking for her, but giving options? Are you making that connection for them just to make this a smoother process? agree with all of that, especially when it comes to like the court clerks. If you make an enemy of a court clerk, you're really going to regret that. Sometimes the judge's secretary or some judges do have a staff attorney that's helping them out, you know, getting to know those people. And as you said, you don't necessarily have to be, you know, super friendly with them, but you definitely don't want to be unfriendly with them and appear, you know, to be antagonistic. They'll take it the wrong way. I guarantee you that they will. And the bailiffs, they provide security in the courtroom. Typically, they're provided by the sheriff's office. You know, so it's good to know those people, both for your own safety and the safety of the survivors that you're working with. And then it's also helpful just to know, you know, does the county attorney have a victim's advocate? Will that person be in the courtroom? Who are the public defenders, you know, that are representing people who've been charged with crimes? Who are the legal services attorneys that, you know, could be helping out with a protective order case? So getting to know all those players would be really very helpful to do the best job that you can as a court advocate. One of the things, too, that I think can be really helpful is visiting different courts. So if you can kind of see, sometimes you just know what to be true because it's what you've witnessed. You know, so if I'm in, you know, I live in Fayette County, if I'm in Fayette County Court, I sometimes can have the pretense that all courts run like Fayette County Court. And then I might go over to Estill County and Estill County might be a completely different you know, process. And so knowing how courts can can work, because if we're advocating for folks, we want to prepare people for that court process and we need to know how that runs. Plus, you might really learn good tips. I might realize that Estill County's bailiffs are really great at separating petitioners and respondents and how they organize the courtroom. And maybe I can take that back to the other county that I'm working with. And if I have a relationship with, um, as you said, the bailiffs and the sheriff's office, a lot of those things can sometimes take place in a really informal way. So always be learning, always be experiencing, looking at through a lens of how a survivor is experiencing this process, how it can be very alienating and very scary. I think some courts do a great job about managing the courtroom, but you might be in an hour in the hallway waiting to go into the courtroom side by side with a respondent. So if there's things that you can be aware of and pay attention to, that is such a great role of what domestic violence advocacy can be in the criminal and civil process. I agree. Should we launch into, let's launch into EPOs and very excited now that we have TIPOs. All right. So um, this is a great tool for some survivors. It doesn't work for everybody. So just, you know, be aware of that as an advocate. If um, a survivor says, no, that's not for me, you know, that's a very legitimate response. There are players in our system that don't necessarily think that. So a DCBS caseworker might say, you have to go get a protective order, even if the survivor doesn't really want to do that for a variety of reasons. But so for those people who want to try to obtain one, it can be a really great way to put some space in between the survivor and the batterer. So that's the main reason why most people want to go get a protective order is that no contact piece of the order. And here in Kentucky, for a long, long time, we had the EPO DVO process where first you would get your emergency protective order, then you would go to court and have a hearing and hopefully get your long-term domestic violence order. And um, spend now four or five years ago, 
we finally passed what we were calling our dating violence leg legislation, and that expanded the protective order statutes um, pretty broadly so that now people who are experiencing dating violence and abuse or people who've experienced a sexual assault or stalking perpetrated by someone that they don't even have a relationship with, that they can seek a protective order as well. And so for those three categories, we refer to that as an IPO, interpersonal protective order. And at the preliminary stage, it's called a temporary IPO. And then you go to court, you have a hearing, and hopefully you'll get your long-term IPO in place. I always want to remind folks because it's really easy when something passes to just go, we've always had this and here we go. And I, and I don't always want to bring people back to history, but it's very important, I think, for people to know that the TIPO and IPO process is relatively new. So many folks did not have access to protective orders when they were in dating relationships, or as you said, it wasn't an interpersonal relationship, but there had been a domestic or a sexual assault that had occurred. And, and we cannot forget the grueling amount of work that KCADV and KCADV member programs fought for so that many women and men had the ability to get protective orders, even though they did not have a child in common or they'd never been married, but they had been in a very intentional dating relationship. So for folks that are sort of tuning into this podcast, please check up on your history. I know one of the other podcasts talks a little bit about the history of this movement, but that was a huge success for many of the folks. And I also wanted to add to what you said, Meg, of really do listen to the survivor that you're working with. Protective orders are not for everyone. We really need to trust that women are the experts on their own lives. And they may say this protective order might put me more in more danger than I was already, or I'm not ready to do this yet. I'm not ready to make that decision for whatever, or I might have immigration or documentation reasons Then I'm uncomfortable with getting a protective order. So for lots of reasons, there may be cause to not file a protective order. So as an advocate, help that person investigate that, explore those options, but don't arm twist if someone's saying they don't want a protective order. Absolutely. Um, just like any other time that a survivor approaches the systems that are in place for help, it can be a double-edged sword and there can be lots of reasons why they may not want to pursue a protective order. Or in some cases, you know, they have tried in the past and then they've had negative consequences because of that. And so they don't want to do that same thing again. I think we do have some research that shows that in about 50% of the cases where a protective order is in place, that that does pretty effectively stop the violence from occurring. And that in the remaining 50% of the cases, that the violence that the survivor is experiencing is greatly reduced. You know, so for a lot of people, it does work and it's a great tool. I think that's critical to hear. We sometimes hear the myth of that. It's just a piece of paper. It really doesn't do anything, but the research does not pan out for that to be true. But protective orders can be as extremely beneficial or, or beneficial or efficient in reducing or stopping the abuse. Just to uh, recap exactly what you just said, but I hear that myth a lot. It's just a piece of paper. What's the point? But it really can it can really do a great deal of of support. So filing for the petition, that sometimes I think is a really confusing place because it's a different process than criminal. So if you're filing for a protective order, where is it that you go? Right. So in our whole, you know, legal system in the country and in Kentucky as well, you know, you basically have this 
you know, two different types of cases. One type of case is a criminal case and everything else is typically referred to as a civil case. So a criminal case is where the state of Kentucky or the United States is prosecuting an individual for violating a, a criminal statute. The protective order process falls into the other category of civil cases. A civil case is typically where one person or entity is bringing a legal action against another person or entity. And so in a protective order case, the petitioner is the person that's asking the court for the protective order and the respondent is the other party, the person that the protective order might be entered against. And so those processes occur in Kentucky in civil district court if there's no family court in that county, or it's going to happen in family court if there is family court in that county. And, you know, during normal business hours, a person's probably going to go to the circuit clerk's office in order to file that petition. But it's a real patchwork in the 120 counties across Kentucky that even during normal business hours, they might be directed someplace else. There might be a domestic violence intake center like there is in Jefferson County. Fayette County has the Amanda Center. Some of our programs actually assist people to get protective orders. Most of our programs don't. And then after hours, it's another patchwork of, you know, once the clerk's office is closed at the courthouse, maybe you'll have to work with the local police department, maybe with the sheriff's office. There might be an on-call assistant county attorney that you need to go talk to. Again, it could be one of our programs for the few programs that do that service. It could be the Kentucky State Police. So it really is helpful for an advocate to find that information out. You can ask your coworkers, your supervisor, your director, but every county has a written protocol about where someone needs to go in order to get a protective order 24 hours a day. It's an important piece, too, for the folks that are answering that crisis line. So a lot of times when I'm talking about this situation, we're talking about those court advocates, those legal advocates that are out in the community. And after a little bit, they begin to know, this is what I do on the weekends. This is what I do, you know, at three o'clock in the morning. And this is where we send folks. But so many of the folks that answer these calls are somebody answering the crisis line at 3 a.m. And someone says, I need to get a protective order. Where do I go? So if you are in that position, like if you've got a specific position of, of that and it's not something you all rotate amongst each other, but if you have that, it really, I implore you to kind of find out in your counties, where is it that you go or at least have a contact number that you know this is a 24-7 agency and you can always call the sheriff's office or the police department to find out where someone goes in this county because we don't want someone to hesitate. You know, we don't want someone to go, I need to file an emergency protective order. And we'll say, well, we'll have an advocate call you, you know, Monday and it's Friday night, you know, third shift. So, so stretch out a little bit in your role, in your, in your program and really make sure that you have that information. Um, so once you sort of figure out where you file, uh, what are some, some of the forms of relief that you can request at the EPO stage? Well, for the EPO and the temporary IPO, um, the form that you file is a petition and it's the same. Um, so the person doesn't necessarily need to know I need an EPO or I need a 
T-I-P-O. Um, and on that form, they'll just check off the relationship they have with the person that they're asking for the um, protective order to be entered against. Um, and that will alert the judge to what type of order that needs to be entered. And as I said, the um, primary reason people want to get a protective order is the judge can order the respondent have no contact with the petitioner. Um, and they can add to that a specific provision um, that the respondent stay away 500 feet um, and the petitioner, if they want to, and if it's safe for them to, they can actually list different addresses on the petition in terms of where they want the respondent to stay away from. The respondent can be ordered to vacate a shared residence. Um, and if there are, you know, children in common, the court can order temporary custody to the petitioner at that point in time. So those are kind of the bigger um items that people may be looking for. Some of the things with I, I, the addition of adding the addresses, some other additional addresses that you want this person to stay away from, I think can be extremely helpful. Sometimes it can be a catch though. If you've got a petitioner in the midst of their crisis and stress, they see a line that it says, you know, place this address. And it might be an address that that person was not even aware of that was a place to stay away. Um, we occasionally have where people will go, oh, I'm staying at the domestic violence shelter, and then they put the address. Um, some, some programs are disclosed and some are undisclosed, but we probably didn't want that respondent to know that that's where she was staying. So, so you know, as you're coaching someone um, or advocating with someone in that process, not coaching by putting words in their mouth, but you're working with that person, um, you might want to catch that. Um, some other things I think is always really helpful if you've got a person who's a little all over the place, which is not atypical in those situations. Um, I sometimes have them kind of write their thoughts down a little bit first as to what they're asking, and then they can kind of transpose that to the protective order just to get their just to get their focus a little bit together. And some things too that I always sort of look at if there was a delay in filing. This incident happened three weeks ago, but I'm just filing now. Those things can happen, but sometimes judges when they go, well, this should have been an emergency three weeks ago now does not make an emergency. So just be prepared to sort of explain what may have caused that hesitation. And usually there's a perfectly good reason of the hesitation. This happened, but I thought things would be better, but they found me again. And, you know, for whatever that may be, but, but just begin to talk through and process with that individual, those little hiccups that might hinder or, or alter the success of getting the protective order. So once a judge has looked at it, um, what is usually, did they enter the protective order? Is there a rule that if they don't enter the protective order, they always have to issue a summons? Is it ever just dismissed outright? So as you say, what goes on the petition is critically important because this is just something, a paper chase. Um, so the petitioner is not going to appear in front of the judge at this point in time. No one's going to contact the respondent. So what goes on that petition is all that the judge is going to be looking at. And what they're going to be looking at is has the petitioner alleged something that happened that rises to the definition of domestic violence and abuse or dating violence and abuse or sexual assault or stalking? And, you know, when the judge reviews that, if they make a finding that there is enough there to say that that happened, 
then they should at least set the case for a hearing and issue a summons to have the respondent brought into court. Then there's a second step in the process where the judge then looks at what's in the petition and tries to make a determination, is there an immediate and present danger of more violence occurring if they don't enter some sort of a temporary order? Um, and if they fall down on the side of, yes, there is an immediate and present danger, then they'll go ahead and also issue that emergency protective order or temporary IPO. And I would say in the huge majority of cases, the judge gonna, is going to err on the side of caution and they'll set the case for a hearing. They'll issue a summons to bring the respondent into court and they will also issue that temporary order. And then that temporary order will go into effect once it's served on the respondent usually by law enforcement. What I find a little bit that I'm that I'm noticing in some courts is we've somewhat I'm going to use the word streamlined but I don't mean it in that same way. I just mean I think I think judges are sometimes cookie cuttering their responses to protective orders. And the joy of a protective order is it can be nuanced to fit the needs and the safety needs of that individual family. Like that was the joyfulness really of protective orders. This family needs a no contact. This family needs a no violent contact. This family needs help with a visitation and an exchange. This family needs child support. This family needs this person to go to batter intervention program. Like there's so many different little variables. This needs, this person needs getting an escort to get their property. Lots of different variables that a protective order can kind of take depending on the situation at hand. And so I think advocates really working with a person when they're safety planning with that individual and being aware of these are things that you could ask for. And then also knowing not to jump because we'll go into the hearing a little bit, but you can change what you've requested in the EPO or the TIPO in your request for the at the hearing. So whether you're getting the IPO or the DBO, you may go, I want no violent contact at the TIPO phase, but now I've realized I really need no contact order. So those things can be a little fluid from one point to the next. Yeah, and unfortunately, um, I think it's still the case that most petitioners that file for protective order in Kentucky aren't assisted when they're filling out those petitions. And so they may not know what to put down. They may not know what to ask for. So I think it's really helpful for an advocate to go over that petition, like not when you're with a client, but you know, just go over it really thoroughly and see what are the options that somebody could ask for. And, you know, when it comes to actually filling in sort of the narrative portion, they need to make sure the petitioner needs to make sure that they do set out enough information, again, so that the judge can see that, you know, the legal definition of domestic violence and abuse, dating violence and abuse, et cetera, has been met. Because if not, then as you had said earlier, the petition can just be dismissed and the case may not even be set for a hearing. Right. So now we've we've made it hopefully through that process. And if you're noticing that petitions are being dismissed quite a bit, summonses are not being met, those are things that, you know, we're hoping advocates that are out in the field are giving that information back to our directors and to our programs because something might be amiss in those areas. We're having a lot of people filing, but not a lot of people that are getting the court date to go forward. But you've now hopefully got the protective order, the emergency protective order or the TIPO, and you're in court. What does that process look like? Well, it is a court hearing, just like any other court hearing. The two parties will be sworn. They'll be under oath and they can offer testimony. 
there's the opportunity to present evidence. And, you know, you may think about like medical records. If there was a physical injury, there might have been a police report. But often nowadays, what we're seeing is a lot of evidence in the form of what's on somebody's uh, cell phone, social media postings or texts, you know, especially if there's, you know, threats or any sort of like admissions after the fact about, you know, what happened or if the person is, you know, texting 100 times a day or what have you. The system is set up so that the two parties don't need to be represented. You don't have to have an attorney. But of course, it's best to have one if you can. And so hopefully all of our advocates know how to try to connect somebody with legal services in their area to see if they could get a legal services attorney to represent them in this hearing. Sometimes the respondent will have a hearing and sometimes the petitioner won't. And that's always a bad situation. It's not a lot that we can do about that, though. And, you know, so the judge will basically let the petitioner go first and, you know, present their evidence. Usually that's in the form of testimony, just talking about what happened. And then when the petitioner's all done, they'll let the respondent go next and then they can say what they want to say. And in these cases, there's no jury. The judge is the trier of facts. So the judge is going to make all the decisions in this case. So the judge will decide whether or not you get your long-term order and they'll also decide what needs to go into that order. So you as an advocate have done your work, right? And you've been talking with that petitioner about the options that they can request. We also talked in a, in a different podcast when we were talking about legal basics of the advocate's right and ability to be in that courtroom and to stand with that advocate or sit with that advocate if they're at a table. And I always forget that's KRS what? You're so smart. It's in the Crime Victims Bill of Rights, so it's KRS Chapter 421 something or other. <laughs> so so get those laminated. I love that that our advocate did that. Have that laminated. So for some reason you're new to that courtroom and that judge is, you know, causing an issue with you standing up there with, with a petitioner, then this is your KRS statute that says that it is okay and and begin to prepare that person for the process of the court. Do you sit down? Are you going to have to stand shoulder to shoulder with this individual up in front of the judge? How does the process work? Do you get to talk first and then and then the respondent gets to talk first? What evidence can you um, bring forth? Again, you're not an attorney, but if you have a long list of text messages where this person is threatening you, that might be an ideal time to talk about how to bring that evidence into the courtroom. Is that person safe where they're sitting and how does just that whole just that whole arena Courtrooms are kind of dynamic places. So does just that whole arena, can we make it as safe as possible for that individual? And then I think it's really important to know how those judges present in court. You know, not to be disrespectful, but we have a tendency to know what judges, what certain judges are looking for. So if you can prepare an individual, you might get a little lecture here, but hold fast and we think you can still get the protective order. But I want to emotionally prepare you that this may be something that comes up. So let's just let's just talk about it a, ahead of time. I think knowing your courtroom, knowing your judge and just letting that petitioner and that victim survivor know as best they can what they're in for not to scare them, but just so that they can get grounded in the process, I think can be tremendously helpful. Absolutely. Unfortunately, I think most of our court advocates work on the fly and, you know, the best that they can do is, you know, to show up for the domestic violence docket and then try to identify the petitioners and talk to them briefly before the hearing. 
if there's any way that you can actually, you know, talk to a petitioner before they're, they're actually there for their court date, that would be optimal. And I know some programs have been working on that, trying to get the clerks to, you know, give out their information so that the person could call in advance. And every once in a while, we have someone coming into shelter who hasn't yet decided whether they want that protective order, or maybe they've just filed and gotten their EPO. And then, you know, we have more time to prepare them. We sometimes in some of our courts have actually had the petitioners are called to come to court 30 minutes prior to the the judge taking the bench. And that gives us a good 30 minutes to sort of meet with folks. So again, seeing what different jurisdictions in different counties can do might be something that you can bring to your own into your own system. The other thing that I think is always really important is if you have the ability to walk out with a person after the hearing. I think we have a tendency to know the legal jargon. So we can go, okay, great. You know, we got a DVO, we got no contact, we got vacate, we got custody. We're like, we got all these things, but she's somewhat shell-shocked. She's walked out that door. She doesn't know when the visitation is supposed to start. I don't know, is it this Wednesday or is it next Wednesday? I don't know if I know what DVO no contact is. Did I did I get what I wanted? And so being able to kind of go through the process of this is a little bit of a summary of what happened and then answer any questions and then certainly let them know if there's any type of violation of a protective order or any further communication that was not supposed to occur. This is where you go to file those those violations of protective order. And that's a that's a good point that I think an important piece of information an advocate can give to the petitioner after the hearing if they did get their order is that, you know, unfortunately in some parts of our state, if a petitioner and a respondent are found together by law enforcement and there's a protective order in place, that law enforcement will arrest both of them. And this is something that really grinds my gears and I've tried to deal with for many years as the KCADV legal counsel, but it just, it continues in different parts of the state. And so even though walking out of the courtroom, the order really only directs the respondent to do things or not do certain things, I think a good advocate is always really going to caution the petitioner not to fall into the trap of, you know, being around the respondent engaging in telephone conversations with the respondent outside of, you know, what's necessary for child exchange or whatever, or reuniting with the respondent without first going back into the courtroom and saying, you know, I want to amend this protective order so that we can have contact because that's actually allowed. That's what's called a no violent contact or no unlawful contact protective order, or they could ask for outright dismissal, but they do run the risk, even though in my mind, they should never be arrested. Like legally, they should never be arrested, charged and convicted of any crime in regards to uh, being with the respondent. That does happen. Beyond the typical um, kind of the usual suspects that make up the conditions of a protective order too, I really wanted to talk about briefly, but a little bit is um, federal gun ban. So with the TIPO, the federal gun ban does not play out the same way as it does in the domestic violence order. Is that correct? Well, actually, the federal gun ban doesn't kick in on any sort of emergency or temporary order. So here in Kentucky, where we have our EPO DVO process, when the judge orders an EPO, the federal gun prohibition that says that the respondent can't be in possession of a firearm 
doesn't kick in. That's not to say that the judge couldn't write on the face of the order that the respondent is not to be in possession of a firearm. Now, if during the course of that EPO, the, the respondent does have a firearm and it's discovered and investigated by the police, whatever, what they've done is violated the protective order. So that's a state offense. It's not a federal firearm offense. Once the DVO goes into place, which is that long-term order, the respondents had their day in court, um, then the respondent can't possess a firearm as long as that order is in place. And if they are found to be in possession, they risk being prosecuted by the federal authorities. Now, that doesn't apply to all DVOs. It gets a little bit complicated. It only applies to domestic violence orders that are between intimate partners. So that would be spouse, ex-spouse, people who live together or have lived together, or people who have a child in common. Now, when you switch over to the IPO side of the house, the federal firearm bans never go into effect for the interpersonal protective orders. That's because the relationship between the two parties doesn't rise to the level of what's considered an intimate partner relationship according to federal definitions. So if you're working with someone who's seeking an IPO and firearms are a particular concern of theirs, maybe they've been threatened with one, maybe the respondent owns a thousand guns, whatever, they can certainly bring that to the court's attention and ask the court to order that the respondent not have a firearm. And then again, if the respondent violates that, then they've just committed a state offense, a violation of a protect order. There are a lot of judges that I think are getting extremely supportive of knowing that firearms in the hands of an abusive person, a domestic violence abuser, is not a safe mix. And they are now adding that as part of their domestic violence order. Sorry, that didn't make sense. But making that part of the DVO, which I think makes it much more usable. The chances probably of ATF coming in, alcohol, tobacco, firearms coming in and prosecuting federally a violation of that order is probably difficult. Might stop them on the purchase, right? That might flag it right on the purchase, but it might not do anything as far as the violation. So if you're working with your community and your judges are receptive to it, you might consider asking them to make a, a gun ban or no guns in the home or no purchase possession of owning firearms part of their order, which makes it a little more enforceable. The other thing, which I really hate that I'm even saying this, but some people are really afraid of taking guns away from their respondent. And so they're really worried at the escalation if they were to take away their hunting weapons, you know, and so Again, we have to listen to victims as to what they feel will keep them the most safe. And that is something I think you just have to have really honest conversations about. The other thing that I want to talk about just really briefly is child support. Child support certainly can be ordered um, through the domestic violence hearing, but it's something I think that sometimes is overlooked and sometimes can be kind of passed on to, we need to go into you know, custody court or divorce court down the road, but sometimes those are not as quick. So you might be waiting several months for that to be happening where you might be able to get some immediate financial relief at the DVO hearing. Right. You know, the judge can certainly order some or many different types of financial assistance for the petitioner, such as ordering the respondent to continue to pay the rent or pay the utilities to keep health insurance in place to keep up with car payments or car insurance, uh, you know, when it comes to mortgages that they will sometimes do that for a short period of time. But unfortunately, what we're seeing across Kentucky is that more and more courts are not wanting to make any decision about custody, period. So they're not really actually awarding temporary custody to the petitioner. And so the individuals are walking out of the courtroom 
the petitioner has a protective order in place, but there's nothing to say who has custody of the children, which can create a huge mess. And so in those cases where the judge is actually making some sort of custody determination, asking for child support is fine. It's appropriate. The judge can award it, um, but it's it's really uncommon to see it done. And judges especially are not going to do it on their own, probably without being prompted or asked by the petitioner. So my encouragement on this podcast is to prompt away. I, I, it's something that I have to say I see all the time. It's something that, as you said, it it grinds your gears. It grinds my gears when I see a, a woman and children living in shelter and perpetrator, respondent, boyfriend, husband, whatever, is sitting at home in the house with the car, with all this stuff. And it's like, oh, this just it makes me crazy. So if we can get some financial relief sometimes for the women and children in shelter while we're waiting for those other things to take into effect, it does not hurt to begin to explore those options at that at that hearing. Absolutely, because we know that, you know, sort of the, th- the big three reasons why a survivor eventually does feel like they have to reunite with their abusive partner is because of lack of finances, no way to support themselves and their children, lack of housing, safe housing, and things that are going on with the children, custody and visitation issues. So we've gone through the hearing. Hopefully I'm now walking out. I have a protective order and now I'm working with that individual. And I'm gathering that that the person that I'm working with is going to move locations. She's going to move to a different county. That's okay because that protective order is now going to go into the link system. It's going to be effective and enforceable in all of our 120 counties across the state, which is why we really like a protective order versus what I called an agreed order where it doesn't go into the link system. I know there's lots of different names for it, but sometimes attorneys will go, well, we don't need to do the official protective order. We can just kind of come to some sort of an agreement, but we like it in link or usually we like that in the link system. But I now I'm thinking that this person is going out of state. And so can you talk a little bit about making sure that that protective order has full faith and credit outside of our jurisdiction, or we're working with somebody who's coming into Kentucky from another state? Well, I mean, there's federal law that requires states to acknowledge and enforce protective orders that are issued in another state. So just because you move from Kentucky to Colorado or wherever doesn't mean that you have to relitigate the case. And that is referred to as full faith and credit. And for someone who's coming into Kentucky with an out-of-state protective order, they don't have to take any certain steps in order for it to be enforceable here, but they do have a process that they can go through if they want to, and it's called authentication. And they take a copy of their order to the courthouse in the county that they're living in in Kentucky. And then it's just sort of this paper chase that the clerk's office has to go through. If you have a certified copy, they really don't have to do anything. The judge here in Kentucky can just sign off on your foreign, what's called a foreign order. It goes into link. If you don't have a certified copy, they'll try to get one from the county in the state where you got your protective order. And so the one little caveat to that is, that there could be some contact state to state. And so if you're concerned about the abuser finding out that you've moved to Kentucky, you know, even that little bit of contact might be enough to alert the person. They're not gonna, they're not gonna notify the respondent, you know, that you're seeking authentication here in Kentucky. But if it's a small community in whatever state you've come from, you know, word gets around and it may be, oh hey, you know, we got a contact from X county in Kentucky. Maybe that's where your wife and kids are something like that. 
So it's just something I think to be really, again, thoughtful of when you're safety planning with an individual. If you can advocate for that person, help them get the copy of the the certified order as they're traveling and they're going to be moving to Tennessee or Ohio or wherever it is they're going. But that's a critical point, too. Sometimes we don't want to put anything in the in the record saying that you've relocated. We want Ohio to stay anonymous and we don't really want anything to highlight that. I was going to shift to criminal charges now if you're kind of ready for that. Sure. The one thing I want to say just to wrap up with protective orders is, you know, what happens when somebody does violate the order? And so the petitioner does have potentially an option here. Violation of a protective order is a class A misdemeanor. So they could report it to the police. They could go to the county attorney's office and try to file a criminal complaint against that individual and initiate a criminal prosecution of the respondent. On the other hand, they can go back in front of the judge that issued the order, and there's a form that they can get from the clerk and fill that out, get the case back on the docket, and then try to have the respondent held in contempt of court for violating that order. So that's an option that the petitioner has. There's been a lot of conversation of that in Fayette County, actually, and some of the judges who are in the family court really like to have it go back in front of them because they feel that it's their order that that respondent is violated, that they might hold that person a little more accountable for that contact or not going to the treatment or whatever that that may be. So you might, again, as advocates, really get to know the lay of your land and sort of know potentially what court process might be more receptive and might actually have a different and a better outcome. I know that that's not true with all of the cases in in Fayette, but I do know the family courts really do like a lot of those violations to come back to them. So in criminal charges, this is where that that piece that we were talking about that I think can get really confusing, right? And a lot of folks kind of like, okay, I've got this order, you know, civil process sort of down, but now I have this at the same time. I have this criminal case that's happening at the, I have got a protective order and now I have an assault fourth charge. And I sometimes get really confused between the two processes. So in the very beginning, you talked about the different court systems and what's going on in district, what's going on in family, what's going on in circuit. But I think as we're talking about the same set of facts, it can get confusing to advocates and petitioners If a protective order is dismissed, I sometimes think my assault fourth charge has been dismissed or I have no contact as a condition of my bond and the assault fourth, but my protective order was amended to no violent contact. So Meg, I don't know that I even have a question in that. I think I'm really just more challenging advocates to really pay attention. If you've got things going on in both both branches, I guess, of the court, you're not making decisions, not knowing what's going on in the other courthouse. Yeah, they're absolutely two separate processes, although there can be some overlap. I've heard judges in a protective order case say, well, I realize there's a criminal case going on against the respondent, so maybe the respondent doesn't want to testify in this case. So, you know, I'll continue the protective order case until the criminal charges are resolved or something like that. But they are two different processes completely. And the prosecutor, either the county attorney or the Commonwealth attorney, is driving the bus on those criminal cases. When you had mentioned about the civil order, that really is the petitioner has petitioning the court for some sort of relief against that other individual, which is the respondent. Now we're in the Commonwealth of Kentucky is now holding that case. But there are sort of a myriad of behaviors, domestic violence offenses that sort of mimic over into criminal court. Assault fourth is the one that kind of comes to my mind, terroristic threatening harassment. You want to talk a little bit about some of those criminal cases and what that process looks like. 
Sure. So um, assault in the fourth degree, which is our lowest level of assault, and it's class A misdemeanor. So it's punishable by up to 12 months in jail. That's by far the most common domestic violence charge, I would say, in Kentucky. But there are other degrees of assault. You skip over assault third because that's basically when you assault a police officer, but there's assault second and assault first. Those are serious felony crimes where there's been serious, very serious injuries or a weapon's been involved, et cetera. You talked about harassment. Um, that's very minimal type of a, a crime, if it even is considered a crime, because it's actually a violation to begin with. Terroristic threatening, criminal trespass, where people come on someone else's property, even though they've been told not to. That can escalate to burglary, which makes us all think about somebody stealing something out of someone's house. But burglary is any time you enter into someone's property with the intent to commit a crime. So if you force your way in through the front door and then you punch somebody in the face, that's actually a burglary as well as an assault. So we have menacing, we have unlawful imprisonment, you know, that happens a lot in uh, domestic violence situations. We have all the sexual offenses, rape, sodomy, sexual abuse, and, you know, ultimately you get all the way up to homicide, unfortunately. And then we have two offenses that we see a lot of in um, domestic violence situations, and that's stalking and strangulation. So, I mean, there's a, a lot of different criminal charges that might be brought against somebody who is, you know, committing criminal acts against their partner. And to go back to what we've said a few times, uh, we have a tendency to think these things have been around a long time, but felony strangulation, relatively new, some of the stalking work, relatively new. So, so really begin to hone yourself in on what the components of that is and how to help a victim document those cases can be so critical, particularly in stalking, can be such a critical piece. And we really look at those as high risk to a person for further violence and risk of death. So really amazed at the work that KCADB and KCADB member programs have had to really bring that to the forefront of legislature and get those, get those laws passed. Yeah, our strangulation law is practically brand new. I think that went into effect in the summer of 2019. And as we know, an act of strangulation is a very high risk indicator. And unfortunately, it's very common in domestic violence situations. And it can easily result in someone's death. It doesn't take very much pressure for very long a period of time to actually kill somebody. And so that's something that advocates should be on the lookout for when they're talking to survivors about their abuse history. Additionally, not just for whether or not a crime could be charged, but also that, you know, that person could get some follow-up medical attention because we know strangulation can cause, you know, brain injuries. And that can have a lifelong impact on that individual. Stalking, of course, it occurs while a relationship is active and it tends to really escalate once the survivor tries to separate from the abuser. And it's really super important for the survivor to document every single incident, even if the police aren't called or don't take a report or it's an anonymous incident, because it typically takes a very long time to put together enough evidence to actually bring a stalking case. So as overwhelming as that litany of, of charges that can be filed is not really the advocate's responsibility or the victim's responsibility to go into the county attorney's office or the police department and go, 
I have just now been a victim of burglary and this. So it really is telling a full story, though, so that the prosecutors can get a good handle as to the multiple things that might have occurred and the multiple charges that, that could be filed. Right. And I think the advocate, if they've been working with a survivor for a long time, is able to put together the chronology of what happens because we also know that trauma impacts the way people remember and recount traumatic events. And that can be really confusing or, you know, off-putting to like a prosecutor or a police officer or whatever. So again, you know, always being there to bridge that gap. If you're able to, that can be a really important service that you can do for the survivor. It's true. I think we talked about this in another in another series, but you would think as long as prosecutors have worked with people experiencing trauma, they would be better at maybe sometimes understanding that our memory doesn't always happen linearly. And so, yeah, so if an advocate can kind of put those thoughts together, write it down, walk a person through things, things might be remembered at different stages. You know, you might be talking with someone for a couple of weeks and they go, oh, I didn't even think about this had happened. So we can start kind of bringing those pieces together. It's really helpful because you will sometimes have criminal justice system begin to maybe, I don't know, look at the testimony with a little more suspect if things keep popping up or if things are a little bit out of order. So if we can, if we can help that. But then once charges have been filed or a protective order has been issued and then we're wanting to do criminal, you know, or then we're doing the violation. Can you just talk a teeny bit? I know we're about ready to wrap up, but I want to make sure people understand warrantless arrests. Oh, I completely well, shifted on you, didn't I? You did. That, yeah. well, that was I've a curveball. <laughs> so Kentucky does have a law that allows police officers to make an arrest for a misdemeanor assault if it's between family members, members of an unmarried couple, or people that are in or have been in a dating relationship, even if the officer didn't see the assault occur. So normally when it's a misdemeanor, officer can't make an arrest unless they saw the misdemeanor occur in their presence or they have a warrant for the arrest. So this just allows police officers to address a crisis situation more quickly and make an arrest on the spot. We don't have a mandatory arrest law here in Kentucky, but officers do have that ability. I just really wanted to highlight that. I know sometimes it can be frustrating. It's quite apparent something happened at the scene. Things have turned over. Couches have turned over. There has been property damage. But sometimes it can be difficult for an officer to make an arrest if they weren't there to witness it. And I and so anyways, then you might have to go through the process of filing a report, filing that yourself. And there often is a confusion whether a report was filed or a criminal charge was filed. So really make sure you're working with that individual to make sure things have been done officially. Yeah, I think I'm getting the look. So I think we're done and we're going to kind of wrap this process up. I really love this section, actually. So, Meg, thank you so much for being here today. And you all have been listening to KCADB's certification series, Legal Basics, Part 2, Section 2.